What's going on, guys? Uh, Matt kind of hesitated right there, and I, I very lovingly put that uh, Dad was sick and he was puking up his toes, and that made Matt kind of uncomfortable, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, did you guys know that in 1967, there was this little-known rock band from England, and they were called the Yardbirds, and this is where a lot of really big talent in that field got their start. Names like Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy. But, they, you know, like I said, they're, they're really well, not well known. They never did make any big hits or albums. And so they eventually, they folded not long after they started. And Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck, they went on to do cool things in their field. But Jimmy, he liked the idea of the supergroup having a lot of talent under one umbrella. And so Jimmy got together with his buddy John and then John's buddy, John, and then they come across this guy named Robert. And so they started practicing, and rumors of their practices started to swell. They started to grow, and they had a lot of potential, and people, people thought highly of it, except this one guy, and his name was Keith Moon, and he was the drummer for another band at the time called The Who. And Keith, he didn't really have a lot of nice things to say about him. He said, yeah, I've heard of those guys, their efforts are going to go down like a lead balloon. And a lead balloon, it's kind of counterintuitive because metal doesn't float that well. And Jimmy, he didn't get mad. He didn't get depressed or sad or he didn't let it get to him. He thought it was kind of funny. And to kind of take a stab at Keith Moon, uh, he decided to name his band after what Keith Moon said. But he wanted to exaggerate it a little bit. And so instead of naming his band Lead Balloon... He named his band Led Zeppelin. And while you guys have never heard of the Yardbirds before, I'd say a lot of us in here have at least heard the name Led Zeppelin. Uh, they were the biggest band, arguably, in the 70s. They went on to sell like 300 million albums, making them one of the top 10 billboard artists of all time. And you might be thinking to yourself, Brett, Led Zeppelin has nothing to do with Jonah. What are you doing? There's a point that I'm going to make, I promise. Um, Keith Moon, that, those words that he said, lead balloon, was ultimately meant to cause Jimmy and his boys downfall. It was, it was meant as a dig, but that kind of gave them their platform for success. And that's what I want us to, to take away as we go into the book of Jonah this morning. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I want to pause to explain a couple of things right here. The first half of Jonah and the second half of Jonah, they, they overlap each other in a lot of ways, and they mirror each other. And so much so, they even begin with the, almost the exact same words. If you guys remember from last week, uh, God told Jonah in chapter 1 to go up to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And he almost uses the exact same words, but it's a little different. In this week's, it's, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. I want us to remember back to whenever we were little kids. And maybe there's some kids in here now that can relate better to this. But uh, remember a time when our parents, they told us something really simple to do, like, like to take out the trash. 
and to take out the trash because it's full. And instead of just immediately listening, we, we fight our parents a little bit. We drop our shoulders and we say, why do I always have to take out the trash? Um, my brothers and sisters, they never take out the trash. It's always me. And then there's a moment of silence right there where our parents, they just look at you really intently. And they say, you take out the trash because I told you to take out the trash. See, the trash, the, 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 no, the problem is no longer that the trash can is full. It's that you have a stubborn and entitled child standing right here in front of you. And so you tell them that, and then they, you, they straighten up and they say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. And I think that's what happens here in our narrative. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he tries to reason with Jonah. Hey, I need you to go there because they're, they're a pretty wicked and evil bunch, and Jonah fights God the entire time, like he did last week. And the second time God tells Jonah, there's no longer a reason. He says, go to Nineveh because I told you to go to Nineveh. And the very next verse, it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That works. Jonah is finally getting it. But the verse after that, it, it takes a break from that narrative, and it tells us this random fact. It says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' journey in breadth. And that's a kind of a controversial scripture, because archaeologists have noted, while Nineveh was the biggest city at the time, it wasn't necessarily that big. To give you an idea, this is what Nineveh looks like from the top. Uh, it is a mile and a half wide, and it is three miles long. And so it wouldn't have taken you three days to walk a mile and a half. And Christians, they, they've used this argument to say, well, Jonah, it would have taken Jonah three days to take the tour throughout the city. And I can buy that, but that's not really what Scripture says. Scripture said that Nineveh was three days' journey wide. It was three days' journey in breadth. And so I kind of agree with archaeologists on this one. That is until you read the book of Genesis, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. It talks about this guy named Nimrod, and uh, he wasn't dumb like Bugs Bunny suggests, but he goes on and he builds uh, all of these nations and cities that were ultimately kind of end up becoming Nineveh, or, uh, Israel's enemies later on in, in history. And he builds Nineveh, but not only Nineveh, he builds Rehoboth-ir and Kala, and then Rezin in between Nineveh and Kala, and that is the great city. And I think the book of Jonah, it, it, it calls Nineveh the great city several times throughout the book of Jonah. And I think that they weren't trying to imply that Nineveh was a great uh, destination vacation spot. Uh, Nineveh is a great city because of its size. And not just the walled city, but kind of like the metropolis area around uh, the highways and the byways. And so... He tells us that, but then goes on to say that Jonah only began to go into the city going a day's journey. And so I don't think that, I think what the author of Jonah is trying to imply is that Jonah probably didn't even reach the city itself, just kind of like the rural area outside of the city. And so we're already starting to see cracks in Jonah's obedience. And it's, it's starting to go downhill. And then starting with the very next verse, it says, and, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Guys, that's an eight-word sermon. In the original language, that's five words. And you may be thinking, well, Brett, he, he probably said more than that. There was probably more to his message than just those eight words. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that too. But usually whenever you condense a sermon, you take the highlights, the main points, and 
there's not really many points to highlight there. I'll give you an example that I think we may all know. Uh, in the 1987 classic movie, The Princess Bride, there's this guy in the movie, and his name is Inigo Montoya. And from a little kid, Inigo, he faced childhood trauma when he saw his father murdered by the hands of a guy with six fingers on his left hand. And so he starts practicing sword fighting to, to maybe one day avenge his father's death. But he doesn't just practice sword fighting. He, he practices this one line over and over and over and over again, almost to the point where it becomes obnoxious. And that line, it goes something like this. He goes, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And so... Again, that, that line, it gets repetitive up until the very end of the movie. When he finally gets to deliver that line, it hits, and it hits hard, and it is probably the best part of the whole movie. But unlike Inigo's message that he practiced over and over again, from what we can tell of Jonah's message, there's no introduction to Jonah or who he represents. There's no indication that Jonah gave them a reason that they're in this mess to begin with. No reason that they've gotten themselves in this mess. There's, there's no hope for salvation, even. All Jonah went to Nineveh to say was, prepare to die. There had to be something more than that, I would imagine. Otherwise, he could have just sent a letter or a memo, you would think. That's, that's not a lot to say whenever you're traveling 500 miles to get to the place where you're supposed to be teaching. But despite that, look, look at what happens in the very next verse. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh and said, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce angers that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them. And he didn't do it. If that was Jonah's message, just those eight words, there's something to be said about an eight-word sermon that brings an entire city to repent and believe in a holy God. Unfortunately for you guys, I've got you for another 30 minutes. Um, as we read this, we see that the original mission is accomplished. God sent Jonah to go to Nineveh for their evil has come up before him. And if you look here in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them. And not only did these people repent, but I think the author is kind of exaggerating the claims a little bit. And up here in verse 8, he says, Let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. I think the, I think the king was insinuating that even the cows should be repenting and worshiping. And as ridiculous as that sounds, everything else in Jonah, I believe, so I, I'm not entitled to question this. Um, and that's usually where the children's book drops off. God's God's original uh, mission is accomplished. But what about what Jonah said earlier? Jonah said that the city of Nineveh was going to be overthrown. And that's not what happened. 
So does this answer one of our questions from last week where we asked if Jonah was a false prophet? No. No, and I'll tell you why. I'll give you an example. We have this word in English, and that word is takeout. And you could use takeout in a variety of ways, in a variety of meanings. And, like, for example, I can take out my lovely wife, Emily, on a, on a nice romantic escapade. It's sweet. Uh, I may even take her out to go get takeout or Chinese food. Um, if, if Emily's brothers hear of that, though, and uh, they're, they're kind of picky, and they think that their sister deserves better than cheap Chinese food, they may shoot me a dirty look. And if I see them give me that dirty look, I may take them out back and I may give them a thrashing. <laughs> Just kidding, I, I would never do that to Emily's brothers. I love them very much. Uh, also, they're a lot bigger than I am. But there's another way of looking at the word takeout. Uh, where's my goose hunters in here, Walker? As you're, as you're laying in your pop-up blind and the geese are circling overhead, uh, right before you pop out of the blind and draw a beat on these birds and pull the trigger, what is the word that you say to everybody in line to get them on the same page? You say, take them out. So unsuspecting death. Uh, so this, this word take out, it, it has meanings ranging from acts of love to acts of death, even though it's the exact same word. Fair enough. There's a word in Hebrew that's also like this, and that word is hapak. That's the word that Jonah uses whenever he tells Nineveh that they are going to be overthrown. The first definition of this is to is to overthrow or more accurately overturn either by military conquest or divine intervention. This is what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah when God rains fire and brimstone down on the city. Sodom and Gomorrah was hopocked. But that's not the only definition. There's another definition to hopock, and it's not to overturn, but it's to turn over. Or to be turned over to. Uh, you've heard of people saying that they had a change of heart or that they've turned over a new leaf. Same root word, different definition. Uh, whenever Matt walked us through Samuel last year, Samuel, he anointed Saul and he says, man, look, whenever you leave here, you're going to run into some prophets. And whenever you run into those prophets, you are going to be turned into a new man and you're going to prophesy with them. And he did. That word that, that Samuel used, hapak, it's, it's the same word. So if you go back to our story here in Jonah, starting halfway through verse 8, the king says, Let every man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented at the disaster that he said that he would do to them. Does that make more sense? Like Keith Moon said uh, that Lead Balloon was going to be the downfall of Jimmy and his buddies, they, they used the other definition of that, and they became Led Zeppelin. And as they went on to become the biggest band in the world at the time, Keith Moon probably looked like a chump. How do you think that it made Jonah feel? In the very next verse, it said that it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Guys, Jonah is ticked and he reveals that this is the entire reason that he left to go to Tarshish to begin with. He throws this accusation against God and he says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But all those are good things. As a matter of fact, this is God's theme verse. It's presented all throughout the Old Testament about two dozen times. It started in Exodus 34, whenever Moses is up on the mountain with God, and the Israelites are down in the valley below making a golden calf, and God God gets ticked. And he threatens to wipe Israel off the map at that very moment, but he doesn't. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Again, in Psalm 86, verses 14 and 15, David used this verse while he was running for his life. He said, O Lord, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not yet set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. There's our word again. Turn. Again, Psalm 145, 8 through 9. David loved this verse because he loved God. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Last one, I promise. Joel 2, 12 through 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts, and not just your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents from disaster. Again, this verse, you guys can just do a keyword search and you'll get probably two dozens of, those, of God's same theme verse. And this is the only instance where it's thrown back in God's face. And why, why does Jonah do that? Why is Jonah so bitter and so angry? Because of God's consistent love. It doesn't make sense. And it wasn't until you knew a little bit about the Assyrians. Um, and to do that, I want to introduce you guys to these things called the Lachish or the Lachish Reliefs, depending on how you say it. Uh, what a relief was, it was, it was this thin slab of alabaster. It was about two foot wide and about eight foot tall. And uh, they had carvings on them. And they would hang them up on the walls in succession and they told a story. And the Lachish reliefs in particular was of Assyrians' conquest of the Judah town of Lachish. Or Lachish, I, I jump back and forth. Um, if you look at this picture here on the left, this is, this is the reliefs in the British Museum. You guys can actually go see these for yourself today. And if you start on the left-hand side, you'll, you'll see uh, the Assyrians depicting uh, them destroying the town of Lachish, breaking down the walls. And as you progress further down the wall, you'll see an image like this, where Assyrians are leading Israel out in chains into slavery. And the further down you get on that wall, the more gruesome it gets. 
you start to see pictures like this where Assyrians are impaling Israelites on these giant stakes. And the picture here on the left where they're skinning Israelites alive. And uh, you might say, man, that, that's really gruesome. This is Sunday morning. Maybe not appropriate. There's kids in here. And this is the PG-13 stuff. This is, Assyrians did way worse stuff than this. But what's the relevance of me showing you this this morning? Because the Assyrians didn't sack Lachish until about 100 years after Jonah. Where do you guys think these were found? They were found in Nineveh, the very same place that Jonah was going. These were wall decorations, not at the time, but again later. So this, this shows the kind of people that the Assyrians were. Uh, they, they were a dark and evil and twisted people. So when I said last week that, that Jonah, it was like Jonah walking across enemy lines to, to give them a piece of God's mind, that analogy went deeper than that. This would have been like a Jew walking into Nazi Germany at the time and giving them a piece of his mind. Guys, that would scare the pants off of me. But that wasn't Jonah's motivation. Jonah tells on himself, he says, it's not that he's scared, he says... This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and you were merciful and that you would relent from disaster. Jonah knew that he was going on a rescue mission and he didn't want any part of it. That then answers one of our questions from last week where, where Jonah would have rather rotted in the belly of a fish than to see his enemies saved. And guys, this is dark because he, he, he doubles down and he says, God, just, just take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. He pulls that same stunt on God that he did the sailors last week where he tries to convince God to kill him. And this is dark because when God almost threatened to wipe out the Israelites back in Exodus, Moses, he stepped in and he said, hey, I'm, I'm the mediator, I'm the intercessor. Uh, don't, don't kill them. Kill me instead. And this was awesome because it was supposed to represent Jesus a couple thousand years later and, and what he would do for each and every one of us. But Jonah, he didn't take that route. He said, either kill them or kill me because I don't want to live in a place where they continue to exist. And then God, he turns to Jonah and he says, are you right to be angry right now? And he's not asking because he doesn't know. He's not sitting there scratching his head saying, does Jonah have a point? No. God's asking Jonah a rhetorical question, so Jonah has a moment to self-reflect. Maybe hold the mirror up and think, am I? Am I right? Maybe I'm not. Does he take the opportunity to self-reflect, though? No. If you go to the very next verse, Jonah goes out of the city, and he sets to the east of the city, and he makes for himself a booth there. He sets under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And then it says, God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. So Jonah, he leaves the area of God's blessing, and he goes and he sets up for himself a booth. And this wasn't just an ordinary booth. It wasn't like a kissing booth or a lemonade stand. This is, this is significant. Uh, the Hebrew word is sukkah. And it was significant because the Israelites, they had a, a feast of booths or a feast of Sukkot. And in that booth, they were, they were to, or in that feast, they were to take a booth like the one pictured and they were to pitch it in their backyards and they were to live in this dude for an entire week. 
and they were to hold a feast, and they were to eat all week long, and they were to celebrate as Deuteronomy 16 verses 13 and 14 emphasizes. God tells Moses that you shall keep the feast of booths for seven days, and when you have gathered the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in this feast, you and your sons and your daughters. But not only your sons and your daughters, but your male servants and your female servants, also the Levi and the foreigner, the fatherless and the widows who are within your towns. Does anybody remember why Israel was made to dwell in, in, in these booths and take the Feast of Booths? Because they were stubborn and disobedient. God told them to go down into the land of Canaan and take it because it was theirs. And so Israel, they send 12 spies out into the land of Israel. And 10 of those spies, they come back and they said, uh, there's a lot of scary guys down there. We're good. We'll just, we'll just camp out over here somewhere. I, I don't really want to go down there. And God said, all right, I tell you what, you're not going over there. You're going back out in the wilderness. And you're living there for 40 years. I'm going to give this place to your kids because of your stubbornness and your disobedience. I gave it to you. Do you see the irony here? Israel is made to dwell in booths and, and be happy in it. And they are to share God's blessing with their neighbors because of their stubbornness and their disobedience. And then if you flip back, God is sharing that blessing with the foreigners, with Jonah's neighbors. But Jonah leaves that and he goes and he isolates himself and he builds a booth for himself there and waits for God to maybe have a twist ending. Guys, this is the opposite of the Feast of Booths. This is Jonah at his most childish yet. And so while he's sitting there waiting for God to maybe destroy the city of Nineveh, God makes this big plant come up over Jonah. And it would have been obvious that it was from God because later on it says that this plant came up in a day. And for a plant that big to come up over Jonah in this booth, it would have been very well evident that it came from God. And so it's like God's making Jonah comfortable in his front row seat to the show that's about to be put on. And so Jonah's like, okay, yeah, I, I am in the right place. Maybe I was being too hard on myself. But remember last week whenever God seemingly blessed Jeroboam, even though he was a very evil guy? And then he blessed Jonah by, after Jonah convinced the sailors to throw him off the boat, God sent that fish to swallow him and secure Jonah in his death that he wanted for himself. God turned around and yanked the rug out from both of those guys. And we should be used to that pattern. And so I think God is setting a trap for Jonah. And Jonah's taking the bait. Because in the very next verse, it says, When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord then said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which it came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Should I also not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? God yanks the rug out from underneath Jonah, not by taking the plant away that God gave Jonah, but also by taking away the benefits of the booth that Jonah provided for himself. And Jonah doubles down on this request to die. 
And so God goes to spring the trap on Jonah. He says, are you right to be angry over the plant? And Jonah's like, yeah, I'm right to be angry. Why do you keep asking me? And God says, man, look, these people in Nineveh, they don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, he's saying, you don't know, they don't know right from wrong. Jonah, they don't have the law. They don't have the Torah. So they can't obey the law, let alone disobey the law. And they're down here worshiping me along with their cattle. But Jonah, you have the law. And here you are feeling sorry for a plant. And you're questioning my righteousness? Oof. This is the third time that God asked this rhetorical question. And again, it's not because he doesn't know or he's trying to sympathize. But again, to hold the mirror up and so that, so that we could see the reflection. But we never see Jonah's response to this. This is the end of the book right here. We don't know what happens after this. And I have a theory. Uh, Matt, Matt turned me on to this. I think uh, we haven't really talked about the author of Jonah yet. And ultimately, it's because we don't know. Nobody autographed the, the definitive copy of Jonah. We don't know who wrote it. But I think it might be Jonah himself. And like God sprung the trap on Jonah earlier with these rhetorical questions, now Jonah is leaving the end of the book open so that Jonah can spring the trap on us, the reader, me and you. Because we get to the end of that book and we, we tend to plug in the blank pieces. We, we t- well, how would, how would Jonah have, well, if I was Jonah, I would have probably reacted in, in this way. You see what I'm saying? This is, this is not a question to Jonah. I think this last question is to us. How would we, how would we react in Jonah's shoes? And you may say, yeah, Jonah, he was a chump. I would have totally nailed the Jonah story. I would have gotten five gold stars. That's great. I'm really proud of you. That's not sarcasm. I'm really proud of you guys that say that. But then that makes me ask, how do we view our enemies today? And that's not a rhetorical question. I I genuinely, I want to know, how do each and every one of you guys view your enemies don't think about somebody else's enemies. Think about your enemies. Don't say your enemies out loud because some of your enemies might be in here. I don't want this to turn into an episode of Jerry Springer. Who is that person that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Whenever they walk in the room, who is that person that makes you grit your teeth? Who is that person that makes you flare your nostrils? Who is that person that pushes your buttons more than anybody else? Think about that for a second. Maybe it's a former spouse. Maybe it's your current spouse. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your extended family or your in-laws. Maybe it goes even further beyond that. Maybe it's your boss or maybe one of your coworkers. Even beyond that, maybe it's, maybe it's those corporations that are trying to shove propaganda down your kids' throats. Those guys are the worst. Maybe it's the government trying to take your freedoms and your privileges away. Maybe it's those two game wardens that wrote you a ticket and took away your deer mounts because you accidentally bought the wrong tags. That one was oddly specific, wasn't it? Guys, I'm not good at this. 
I'm not sitting up here and telling you guys this because I've got it all figured out, because I don't. We all have enemies in here. And we've given Jonah a pretty hard time over the last two weeks. But we can't knock Jonah for not loving his enemies if we don't love our enemies today. And you may try to stop me right there and say, but Brett, you don't, you don't know this. this is a special situation that I'm in. The things that this person has said to me, the things that they have done to me, they've hurt me. This person is pure evil. So just, just be careful, Brett. And that, I'm, that's really unfortunate. I'm sorry for those of you who are in that situation, but are your enemies worse than the Assyrians? I think God gave us the pinnacle, the enemies of enemies, and Jonah still didn't have an excuse. We aren't, we aren't told to, to compare and contrast. Which one in here has it worse off than the other? We aren't told to sympathize with each other. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 in the Sermon on the Mount, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That's not as easy as it sounds. And that brings me to my last point, and it's that God just isn't intent on the accomplishment of his purposes. If that was the case, whenever Jonah, uh, whenever he threw himself overboard, God would have left him to drown at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea or being digested by that fish like we mentioned last week. And God could have sent Amos because Amos was obedient. He could have also sent Hosea because Hosea was also around during that time. He may have had some problems of his own, though. But God didn't send either one of those guys. They sent Jonah because he loved Jonah. And he knew that in the belly of that fish, Jonah still had a heart problem. And so God saved Jonah out of that situation. And even after Nineveh was saved, God still knew that Jonah had a heart problem. And so he sat down with Jonah and patiently and gently held the mirror up to his face, and he said, Buddy, what are you doing? What are you doing? Guys, God does this for us today, too. He says that while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Let me repeat that. We were enemies whenever he sent his son to die for us to reconcile that relationship between us and God. That's Romans 5, verse 10. Why would God love his enemies like that? Guys, whenever we love our enemies, it paints a picture of Jesus to the world because loving your enemies is not a natural thing. It's really hard and nobody else really does it. So we can stand out. We, this is an opportunity for us to stand out and be like Jesus to those around us. And you may say again, why would God do that for his enemies? Why would God send his one and only son to die for a bunch of wretched people? I'm glad you asked, and I'll tell you why. God is a merciful God. And he's gracious, and he's slow to anger. And he abounds in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. I'm going to close this in prayer as the musicians come up. God, uh, we were once your enemies because we were, we were turds like Jonah was. And God, you didn't save us because of the potential that we had or that you felt sorry for us. You loved us despite all of that. You loved us despite of us being enemies. 
And Lord God, we struggle with that. Uh, I pray that you would hold the mirror up into our lives. I pray that you would uh, show us where we struggle. Pray that you would sanctify us and, and make us more like you. Prepare our hearts as we sing and worship. And uh, we just thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up and sing.